Welcome back, everybody, to the fourth and final episode of John Fitzgerald's fascinating talk on trust in a time of pandemic. In probing the use and abuse of civilization in global conversations around the COVID-19 pandemic, I don't mean to diminish the importance of culture or civilizations or their role in building trust among peoples. In some ways, the claims made for Chinese civilization today by the Communist Party echo the Asian values proclaimed by successive Malaysian and Singaporean governments in the 1990s. Then too, we were taught that deference to authority, submission to hierarchy, subordination of individual interests to the solitary group and so on, accounted for the Asian economic miracle at that time. In the abstract, these values have merit. In the case of People's China, they're not abstract and they're not merit-worthy because the authority that must be obeyed is a party that professes values extracted from the extreme end of the Western authoritarian spectrum, the Leninist Communist Party. This party is not the contemporary avatar of an ancient civilization. It's a Leninist vanguard party that deploys civilizational cover to maintain its monopoly on power to disarm its critics and aspire to regional and in time global dominance. The dissonance between the party's commitment to Marxism Leninism on the one hand and its abuse of civilizational cover on the other can be heard in the party leadership's current focus on what it calls political struggle. The idea of struggle has little place in the Confucian canon it was, though, never far from the lips of Mao Zedong, his most fanatical. And the word struggle has become one of party secretary Xi Jinping's favorite expressions. In the published version of one brief speech he gave in September 2019, the word struggle appears 54 times, along with the more ominous term, great struggle. In Mao's day, these terms signaled major conflict within the party and with the United States of America. They send the same signals today. To be clear, as far as the party is concerned, this great struggle is not a clash of civilizations. It's a struggle for dominance between two political ideologies and their rival social and political systems, both incidentally originating in the West. General Secretary Xi Jinping made this clear in his first speech to the Politburo in 2013, when he spoke of, and I quote, a long-term struggle between the two social systems, socialism and capitalism. And he said, I quote, most importantly, we must concentrate our efforts on building a socialism that is superior to capitalism and laying the foundation for a future where we will win the initiative and have the dominant position. In the words of General Secretary C, we are engaged in a struggle dominance. It's not one of our own devising and it's not a clash of civilizations. It's a struggle of a more familiar kind between tyranny and liberty and involving propaganda and disinformation of an old and familiar kind as well. The party's weapon of choice in this struggle is disinformation designed to place a heavily armed authoritarian party state in the dominant position in our region in this generation and in a dominant position in the world in our children and grandchildren's time. 
Once we recognise that the differences which divide Australia from People's China are not differences of culture and civilization, but differences of ideology, political values and systems of government, we can draw confidence knowing we've encountered this kind of historical struggle before. Yes, we need to master history and culture. The history of Chinese and international communism, the culture of Leninism. And while we should avoid spinning for ourselves a Western version of Dr. Ding's curious civilizational yarns, we can draw on our own civilizational resources as an inclusive liberal democracy. And I'm referring here to Western and Eastern civilizational resources, classical and religious, historical and modern, to expose this abuse of history and civilization. We have the conceptual frameworks and we have the cultural resources to respond to this challenge, the challenge that a Marxist Leninist state presents to an inclusive liberal democracy like Australia. We have the institutional resilience and the legislative tools to do it as well. We just need to do it. How? I can think of three ways forward, and I'm sure there are many others. One is to build independent sources of knowledge of China's history, culture, civilization, contemporary government, here within Australia, to help us make independent judgments on our own account. The second is to double down on our, commitments to our commitment to openness and transparency as a condition of trust, in particular the condition of placing trust in others. The third is to acknowledge and embrace what we might call the innocence that comes with leaving yourself open and transparent to others on this naive model of trust. I'd like to just touch on each of these through these three points in turn in concluding. So our first challenge is to build knowledge resources among our political and business communities and in our wider education systems to understand people's China. The differences that divide us are not differences of culture or civilization. Which, which we can explore and which we can respect. They're differences of ideology, political values and systems of government, which we can understand and which we can reject. This means at a minimum that Australian universities should sever all formal ties with China's disinformation network, including the global Confucius Institute network, and at the same time build independent system capacity in China studies in the humanities and social sciences flow on programs into our local school systems. There's little about contemporary China that can't be explained and taught using standard tools of languages and cultural studies, histories of communism or fascism, social analyses of networks, economic studies of institutions, mainstream studies in political science and so on. We're not talking esoteric knowledge here. The second way forward, is to press for greater transparency in all aspects of relations with China. The comments on trust by Foreign Minister Payne on the ABC Insiders program on the 19th of April are worth recalling here. I quote, my trust in China is predicated on the long-term relationship. My concern is around transparency, end quote. Long-term relations do depend on trust and transparency. Australians associate trust with transparency because the two go together in public life in this country. Australians trust one another to do the right thing, whether they know one another or not. 
and they consider openness essential for maintaining public trust in this environment. In Australia, trust is a public good. This is not how trust works in all countries. We need to be mindful of this. In China, trust is basically a personal thing embedded not in public life, but in relations among people, families, communities, networks. Interpersonal trust of this kind is predicated not on openness, but on secrecy. And I suspect it's this style of secretive interpersonal trust that China's party leaders are seeking from Australia when they talk of enhancing mutual trust between our two countries. They're unlikely to find it here, I suggest, because the kind of trust that Australians want to find in China involves even greater openness and transparency. My third point is this. There's a certain innocence or naivety about Australians that needs to be acknowledged and embraced. In my experience, people in China admire the way Australians trust one another, trust strangers on sight, in fact, and wish they could say the same for China. True, they may take us for suckers for being open and trusting, or country bumpkins, as one Chinese friend told me decades ago. But comparisons of this kind are not really meant unkindly. A reputation for innocence or naivete is not a bad thing among people who are long accustomed to watching their backs and cynically searching for ulterior motives in the conduct of others. That can get tiring. Innocence is a virtue. Of course, naivety or innocence can also be a handicap in business dealings with China. Another friend told me that Chinese business firms like working with Australians because they're trusting. I think he meant pushovers. I can't vouch for the truth of this claim, but the experience of a number of iconic Australian firms in the China market, from Carlton United Breweries back in the 1980s to Crown Casino in our own time, would appear to confirm this kind of judgment. I'd add to that the experience of hundreds of small Australian businesses and entrepreneurs who've been lured into losing their intellectual property in their shirts in China over the decades in between. Australians have gone into China as innocents, and so they should remain. Australia's reputation for innocence and naivety underpins this country's reputation for quality and reliability in the provision of food and beverages, in education and in services. Honesty and transparency may not equip Australians for serious deal-making uh, in Guangxi, China, but these same qualities are essential for earning consumer trust in the quest for safe, clean, quality food and services, especially for children and young people. China's owned producers and service providers can't really compete in their home markets because they can't compete on honesty, transparency, and trust. So a national reputation for naivety offers a sound foundation from which to press the greater openness and transparency as a condition for building trust with China. It could serve Australia and the global community well if it helped to get to the bottom of the current pandemic and limit further outbreaks, outbreaks through an open and independent inquiry. Human health and safety depend on it. Finally, while mindful of the differences in ideology and values that divide us, we need to remember that Australia's relations with China can't be reduced to ideology and politics alone. Trade, investment, migration, and in this time of pandemic, health and human safety 
all play a part in our bilateral relations as well. <laughs> so possibly our greatest challenge is to ensure these other aspects of the relationship are not surrendered to communist to the dominance of a communist party that's taken the initiative from us, as CEP insists at Maslow, in order to secure dominance. We need to take initiatives on our own account, on each of these fronts, on trade, on investment, on migration, on health and security, where there's still ample room for naivety, innocence and goodwill, for the kind of openness essential for building public trust between countries and people between China and Australia. Okay, so John, um, I'd like to, if I could, ask you some more about universities, because you mentioned Confucius Institutes and other university-related issues just now. Can you talk a bit more about the institutes uh, and the role that the Chinese government intends them or intended them to play worldwide and how our universities should respond? Yes, there's been a really very lively public debate about Confucius Institutes in a number of other countries, in, in Europe, in Canada, and the United States, in Australia, the conversation has been fairly muted, I'd have to say. Um, there doesn't appear to be any great concern on the part of universities or even on the part of academics about Confucius Institutes. <clears throat> I think this is misplaced. I think there is cause for concern. Mm. Um, why is there so little in this country? I think there are a couple of reasons. One is, that a good many universities are implicated. Something like a quarter of all our universities have Confucius Institutes, mm. which is a really high level of penetration for kids in the United States. Mm. The second is that our universities are pretty pragmatic. I mean, it's true, they uphold the principles of academic freedom and institutional autonomy and so on. But when it comes to everyday decisions, um, hmm. they don't always present themselves as issues of academic freedom and institutional autonomy. I think the Confucius Institute issue snuck up on universities in a way and they didn't quite know what they were dealing with. Hmm. Let me put it quite simply. The debate in this country seems to be around, well, what's the harm? What harm have they done? I'd say, we shall never know. There's nothing public about Confucius Institutes or the way in which universities enter into contracts with them or how their directors deal with university executives in managing relations with China. All that's inside a black box. So the question, what harm do they do, simply can't be answered because we'll never find out. Mm. I think the question we should be asking is, why do Australian universities allow entities that are part of China's global disinformation system to have a significant place on our campuses? What are they doing there? We need to remember that in China, propaganda, what I call disinformation, Propaganda, education and culture are all part of the one ministerial uh, blamange. It's called a coal, um, a point of entry into policy. And they're run through the propaganda section. Anything to do with education is part of that. And the, uh, the role of Confucius Institutes, which are under the Hanban division, the Jiao the Ministry of Education, which in turn is responsible to the culture, propaganda and education coal or uh, entry point to policy. <coughs> means that they are simply part of that in disinformation system. They have no place here. They should, they should go. I don't understand what they're doing here. I suppose that's the point. And to argue whether they do harm or don't do harm is to overlook the point. Why are we hosting a disinformation system which is parasitical on our liberal democratic institutions to make representations on behalf of a Leninist state? They just don't belong. Right. 
Thank you, thank you. Um, John, I'd like to, uh, as we get towards the end, I'd like, if I may, to ask you a kind of belt and road question that's connected to, to uh, traditional Chinese medicine. Now, I thought of asking you this simply because I read an interview that you did with Rowan Callick in The Australian quite recently, and you've referred to this in your columns in, in Crikey as well. And I think, the, the, if I've got this right, the gist of your remarks was that China is, to a great extent, using the multi-trillion dollar Belt and Road um, initiative, among other things, to promote the use of, or just to sell, uh, traditional Chinese medicine to the tune of many millions of dollars worth of trade, and that they have actively and successfully proselytized for the acceptance of this kind of traditional medicine at the WHO, contrary to existing scientific protocols. And obviously this bears on the pandemic, given its origins. I mean, pangolins are only traded because of the assumed medical value of their scales. Uh, equally, to be scrupulously fair, millions of Chinese and Asian people all over the world use this traditional medicine all the time with no ill effects, although they do have ill effects on endangered species, such as rhinos, for example, but still, do you have any thoughts that you'd like to share with us on this so-called debate between Chinese and Western medicine and on the role perhaps of the WHO in all of that? So the pairing of Chinese and Western medicine takes us back to my comment earlier, the way in which China contrasts itself. One country, one big, great country with a great civilization, but one country with the entire West. This is just as misleading as contrasting Chinese civilization with something called the West, because the world is much more complicated than that. The fact is Chinese medicine is one form of traditional medical practice, which is to be found around the world, including here in Australia, in Tibetan medicines, in um, old European traditional medications, uh, and so on. Each of them with something to offer, and, and many people find them efficacious. Good luck to them. The contrast between those and what in China is called Western medicine is actually a contrast between traditional medical practice and modern scientific medical practice. There's nothing Western about it. And so to set up Chinese medicine in contrast to Western medicine is to suggest there's a sort of big oriental cabinet of medicines on this side labeled Chinese, and then another perhaps Nordic cabinet on the right side, on the other side, <clears throat> labelled Western medicine. It just isn't the case. Western medicine is a methodology. It's modern medicine. It's parasitical on traditional medicines. It explores traditional medications. It extracts, tests and proves the value of some of those ingredients, which then go out into the world as what China calls Western medicine. Actually, they're just extracts from traditional medicine carrying scientific proof. Like aspirin from willow bark or something. That's right. I mean, when we take aspirin, are we taking traditional Egyptian medicine? Because willow bark was consumed in ancient Egypt. It's on papyri 4,000 years ago, mm. um, you know, suggesting this is very good for, you know, headaches and mm. <laughs> what have you. Mm. No, we're not taking traditional Egyptian medicine. I mean, Mr. Bayer, uh, the German pharmacologist, mm. he extracted that knowing it was the traditional medication and trying to find what is it in willow bark that was the effective ingredient. He found it, he isolated it, 
he, um, you know, the, the world profited from his discovery, but so did he. Uh, and Bayer Medicines, Bayer Corporation is, is the result. Now, so there's a fundamental conceptual problem in the way in which China conceives of Western medicine in relation to Chinese medicine. It's traditional medicine, I'd suggest, in contrast to scientific or evidence-based medicine. Now, much as there's a lot of good in traditional medicine, medical practice, there's also a lot of risk, a lot of harm. And I'd particularly point to those that are harmful to human health or harmful to endangered species. And a good many um, elements or ingredients in Chinese medicine really do endanger species in the wild, pangolins among them. And so for who to come out and endorse it in some you know, blanket kind of way is really unfortunate. It seems to me that the WHO needs to stick to modern scientific practice. Traditional medicine's out there, it has its believers, it has its efficacious elements, good luck to it, but it's not up to who to say that's good. It's up to who to say, the WHO to say, <clears throat> what is it that scientific practice can show us really works that limits harm to humans, or limits, limits damaging people, mm. and that poses no risk to wildlife? Mm. That's whose job, I'm not sure. <laughs> it's fulfilled it adequately in recent years. Okay, John, thank you. I've got one last question. Uh, you would know this, and our audience certainly does, that um, I can never resist asking a question about Hong Kong, um, which, which does seem um, relevant just now anyway, and is kind of led into by some of the things that you've been saying. I was disturbed to read last week that the local government in Hong Kong has recently arrested several pro-democracy figures, not for taking part in demonstrations last year, but for having expressed views in the past that are critical of the party and of Beijing. Uh, there was also a story that the basic law, which has formed basically the constitutional framework for Hong Kong since the handover in 1997, supposed to remain in place till 2047, is now being talked down and criticized by the party. Uh, and just uh, yesterday, I think, uh, there was an, an announcement that there might be a review of uh, what the local government in Hong Kong has called liberal studies in schools, blaming them, in schools that is, blaming them for fostering discontent and in fact being part of the cause of the recent demonstrations and um, 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 calling for greater government control of school curriculums. What's your take on these things and on the immediate and longer term future for Hong Kong? Yes, like you, I'm concerned, Simon, deeply concerned. When um, the agreement was signed in 97 with a 50 year sort of time period in which nothing was to change, <clears throat> and that was called one country, two systems. systems. Hong Kong would preserve its rule of law, governance system, civil society, um, customs and religious freedoms and so on freedom of press and religion. It was assumed that these would be preserved for 50 years and possibly China would converge uh, on some of those points, particularly around freedom of religion and freedom of the press, if not democracy. I mean, the fact is Hong Kong was not itself an electoral democracy. China's not likely to end up a simple electoral democracy on the Western model, I think, whatever happens. Mm. Nevertheless, some reform in China around rule of law, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, active civil society, <clears throat> could have been anticipated as changing society in, in Hong Kong's direction rather than changing Hong Kong in China's. The fact is China was moving in that direction. 
until 1908, 1909, and then Xi Jinping came to power in 1912 and 13. <coughs> and it's put an end to any kind of transition in China towards a more open, inclusive, law-based society. That, the consequences of that for Hong Kong could be dire, frankly. So if there's convergence over time, it could be that Hong Kong is expected to converge in that direction. And it, the, the recent developments in Hong Kong appear to be symptoms of that. So I, yes, I too think the prospects for Hong Kong are reasonably dire unless China itself embraces some of those freedoms which made Hong Kong, make Hong Kong such a wonderful place. Indeed. Well, John Fitzgerald, it's been absolutely fascinating. We've, I'm, I'm sure everybody who's listened to this has learned an enormous amount. I certainly have. We could have gone on talking for any amount of time and worn you out completely, but I'm very, very grateful. The Centre is uh, uh, grateful and honoured that you spoke um, so eloquently for us. Many, many thanks, John Fitzgerald. That's a great honour to be invited to speak to your audience. Thank you very much, Simon.